Open your Bibles with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. The Lord has led us by His providence and by His leading upon me for us to study the things most surely believed among us that are yet to come to pass. We are futurists in the respect that there are still some Bible prophecies to be fulfilled in the future. We are partial preterists in the sense that we understand some prophecies have already been fulfilled and some of them in 70 A.D. The combination of which leaves us in the road of truth between both ditches, which has been called by some historicism, because we believe that God's prophecies, especially those of the New Testament and those of Daniel in conjunction with the New Testament, have been fulfilled through history. It is called the continual school of prophetic interpretation because the prophecies are continually being fulfilled. There are three schools of interpreting Bible prophecy. Three schools that count. Three schools that cover 98% of all those who call themselves Christian. There is the futurist scheme that places all the prophecies in the future. This is the C.I. Schofield and Hal Lindsey left behind Bob Jones University School of Thinking that takes the prophecies of Daniel, the prophecies of Matthew 24, 2 Thessalonians 2, the book of Revelation, and sticks them way out in the future at the end of some indeterminate period of time. Jesus Christ will eventually come, and then He'll come again, then He'll come again, as they have a seven-year tribulation out there, which the Bible doesn't teach anywhere. And they have a thousand-year millennium out there of Jesus in an earthly kingdom reigning out of Jerusalem, Israel, at the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea. That's futurism, invented by the Jesuits, furthered by Edward Irving and John Darby, C.I. Schofield, and others, putting everything in the future. Then there are preterists, meaning past. Preterists believe that all the Bible prophecies, Daniel, Matthew, Second Thessalonians, the book of Revelation, were fulfilled by 70 A.D. That's another ditch. All the prophecies, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the great day of judgment, the resurrection of the dead, the new heavens and the new earth, the millennium, the casting of the devil and his angels into the lake of fire, all of it took place in 70 A.D. Preterism. All prophecies in the past Not a word left in the New Testament for us. It's all written with audience relevance, meaning that it was directed to them. And here we are, we sit in an island 2,000 years later without the Word of God to direct us and tell us what's yet coming. But we just read what's yet coming in Job 19 and Romans 8 and 2 Corinthians 5. Those are the two ditches, both of them created by Jesuits in order to defer the attention that had been placed on the Roman Catholic Church and the papacy by the printing of the Word of God at the end of the Dark Ages and by the Reformation and by the Baptists that came out of, the, out of hiding because of that Reformation. They invented these two ditches to get the attention away from Rome because Rome was losing members by the multitudes as the printing presses put in the hands of the people the Word of God. 
And so they had a counter-reformation, and you're welcome to go look at that in the Google search box. Just type in counter-reformation, go to YouTube, type in counter-reformation, and you can watch PowerPoint slides about the Jesuits and their invention of these two ditches of prophetic interpretation to take heat away from the greatest enemy of Christianity ever, the Roman Catholic Church and its papacy, who with all deceivableness of unrighteousness has deceived most and sent them strong delusion so that one of their delusions is prophetic interpretation to put everything in the future or everything in the past. And here we go, Lord help us, on the crown of the road, looking for the yellow line, not wanting to stray toward either ditch by seeing some things fulfilled in 70 A.D., other things yet to be fulfilled, and some that are a fulfilling. Historicists. Three schools of prophetic interpretation. We are dealing with the preterist school, though I hope that my preaching can be of a positive sort, that we can rejoice in the things the Bible tells us are yet to come, so that we might get our attention and affection on the things above like it ought to be. In 2 Timothy 2, we have the first preterist. His name was Hymenaeus, and I read this passage to you. We begin at the 14th verse of 2 Timothy 2. As Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, commits a ministerial charge to his ministerial son, Timothy. Of these things put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord, that they strive not about words to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness, and their word will eat as doth a canker, of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already, and overthrow the faith of some. Well, my purpose is to build up your faith. My purpose is to establish your faith, to confirm you in the faith, so that you can stand against any such thoughts, whether they come by spirit, or by word, or by epistle as from us, that you will not be moved at all. Let's deny preterism and refute it by the gospel claims of what the Bible says are yet to come to pass, which have not occurred neither in 70 A.D. nor before nor since. But yet we wait for them. Gospel perversions by the preterists refute their heresy. Denying basic facts and promises of the gospel prove preterism to be an anti-Christian heresy that cannot be tolerated. Let's look at Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. Let us rejoice today in the truth that God's given us so that it will direct our attention and affection heavenward. I say this for the second time in about as many minutes as Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 through 4 directed us when we opened our assembly a while ago. Let us also at the same time Realize that we need to be armed with five smooth stones in our shepherd's script so that we can wage war against various Goliaths that come along, though 
it is great charity that would call a preterist a giant. They don't deserve such a title. Galatians chapter 1 verse 6, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another. But there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. This is where we stand. We stand on apostolic doctrine in the gospel of our brother Paul, who was the apostle to the Gentiles. We come over to the third chapter of this same epistle, where Paul was dealing against the Jewish legalists, and we read the first verse about these that had departed from his gospel. I marvel, and it causes me to marvel, that some could depart so far from the gospel of Jesus Christ to even consider preterism, since it denies so many of the facts and promises of the New Testament gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 1 of chapter 3, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you, that ye should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. How in the world can men depart from the truth? Can, how can they depart so far from the truth? Here's what I think about them. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 12. Galatians 5.12. Here are the false teachers that overthrow the faith of some. This is what Paul thought of them, and this is what I think of them. And I hope it's what you think of them. Amen. I would. They were even cut off, which trouble you. Now that is Bible doctrine. I wish they were dead. I would they were cut off, which trouble you. The false teachers that were corrupting the churches of the Galatians and teaching them a system of Jewish legalism by which they had to keep the law of Moses and be circumcised in order to be saved, Paul wished they were dead. Now it's called a bewitching here because 2 Corinthians 11 tells us that when a false teacher comes bearing another Jesus another gospel, and another spirit, he is actually a minister of the devil himself who appears as an angel of light. And if the devil is able to appear as an angel of light, then it is no wonder that his ministers are able to appear as the ministers of righteousness. But they are like Hymenaeus. They're overthrowing the faith of some by erring from the doctrine of truth given to us by the apostles. And one of their errors is they don't rightly divide the word of truth. When I emphasize that text, and I emphasize it in Bible hermeneutics, and I emphasize it in this pulpit, don't you forget that emphasis. Sometimes you will read verses that have the same or similar wording, but they're referring to two different events. The Bible is full of those examples, and I'm not going to give you any of them this morning. I have given them before, and they are in outlines on Bible hermeneutics that have been supplied to you. This is an internal rule of Bible hermeneutics, the science of Bible interpretation. 
given to us right here in 2 Timothy 2.15 in the middle of a context about the timing of the Lord's coming and the resurrection of the dead. I'm going to save your sanity by not trying to explain to you how in most of the passages that we're going to refer to or the doctrines that I'm going to mention, the preterists take their stand. Most of you wouldn't be able to follow me and you would end up disillusioned about whether truth can be identified from a Bible. Those of you that could follow me, it wouldn't be good for your mind to see how bad they are. I'm going to provide you all kind of links for those of you that have some sort of twisted ambition that you would like to see, and for a few cases it might be okay, to see what these men believe, you'll have lots of links. I have up here their Bible, the Perugia, by J. Stuart Russell from 1878. I have a couple years' worth of their publications called The Living Presence when my brother was debating them through the Church of Christ in the state of Ohio back 20 years ago, and I have a new King James Bible up here where you can find some of the corruptions made in it to defend preterism. They argue ad nauseum. That means until you're sick and ready to throw up about covenant eschatology, transmillennialism, that means we are able to stick a thousand years between 30 A.D. and 70 A.D. They're such sticklers for timing verses, and yet they're able to get the whole millennium of a thousand years between Jesus' first coming and His second coming in 70 A.D. Amazing. Eschatological elasticity. Or compression. Whatever you want to call it. Amazing what they're able to do. The goal we want to follow is to identify and list facts of the gospel that they openly deny, and by so doing, condemn them as a heresy and by so doing encourage our hearts that the Bible is filled with good things yet to come that that have been the hope of believers for 2,000 years, some of which you had read to you. Preterists, those that believe all prophecy of the New Testament have been fulfilled in 70 A.D., deny the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's read again the passage that I read to you last Lord's Day from the first chapter of Acts where Acts writes Theophilus his second letter and describes to him the taking up of the Lord Jesus Christ in more detail than is found in Luke chapter 24. Acts chapter 1. This is what our brethren have believed for 2,000 years. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back in a physical, visible, literal observable return to this planet. And we will meet Him in the clouds. We will meet Him in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. It is called His appearing. It is called His coming. It is called His appearing. It is called His coming over and over and over and over in the epistles of the New Testament. Acts chapter 1 verse 9 And when he had spoken these things, Luke writes Theophilus about the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8 is in red because it's the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9 are the words of Luke by the Holy Spirit about the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. 
which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. When I read that to you last Lord's Day, I stopped and commented on each of the verbs referring to them visibly seeing the Lord Jesus Christ because there's many of them in these three verses. We won't have to do that again. Let's turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 If you make a reading of the first epistle to the Thessalonians, which is the first epistle Paul wrote, based on the best information we have out of the book of Acts and the rest of the epistles, you will find him dealing with the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in each of the five chapters. It was a great theme for him, and no wonder when he wrote 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he had to stop that church from thinking that Jesus Christ was imminently to return. Because he had mentioned it in all five chapters. Because it's a great subject. Our Lord is coming back. You've never seen anything like Him. And you'll behold Him with your own eyes. And if you've already died and are sleeping in the dust of the earth, He will raise you with the power of His creative voice from that grave and put your body back together and change it, and you shall be forever with the Lord. These are things that our brethren have always believed, and they are willing to die for this faith. And I hope that you're willing to live by this faith. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. Those are those that are in Psalm 49, all verses but the 15th. Those that have no hope about a dear loved one dying. And Paul is writing to these Thessalonians to comfort them in that Jesus Christ coming back does not mean that those that have already died are going to be lost. I would not have you ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep. That's those brethren that had died and were sleeping in the church cemetery. That is, their bodies are sleeping, their spirits were in heaven. That ye sorrow not even as others which have no hope, we come to the 14th verse. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with Him. Those elect that are sleeping in the church cemetery, God is going to raise from the dead. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. That is, we shall not precede them to meet the Lord. They're going to precede us to meet the Lord. That is the use of the word prevent in this context at the time of the writing of this English Bible. Verse 16, For the Lord Himself... For the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. The reason that the apostle deals in the second person, the first person and the third person, about those that are already sleeping in the church cemetery is for the comfort of these believers to specifically identify those that had already died that they would be raised first. The apostle could have put them all in the first person. We which are, 
we which are sleeping in the church cemetery will all be raised when Christ comes. But he makes a distinction. This will become important if you really want to understand your Bible to be able to refute heresy. There's a reason he worded it this way in order to focus attention on that particular class of brethren that had already died. That they were going to be raised first. So that the living did not have to worry about their dead relatives. That if Jesus were to come right now, He's coming after Bruce before He comes after you. So we don't have to worry, do we? That's pretty exciting, isn't it? And the Lord worded it that way for our comfort. So instead of the Lord forgetting about him, He's coming for him first. And instead of it being harder for the Lord to deal with a decaying and dissolving corpse, He'll raise it first. Because there's nothing too hard for the Lord. Do you understand the hope that is in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ if you'll but read its words with a third third grader's understanding? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Look at John chapter 14. John 14. For those of you who don't know who Bruce is that I just referred to and you're listening to this sermon elsewhere, well, you just make sure that you join us in heaven and we'll introduce you to Bruce. John chapter 14, verse 1, Let not your heart be troubled. Is there any reason why your heart should be troubled? Because you pierced a drain pipe in your house this week? Because you had a rough week on the job? Because you had strep throat? Because you got caught by three red lights in a row? Let not your heart be troubled. We're talking about death, dying, and real issues here. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God. The issue here was Jesus was going to leave them. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Look at 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. I'm giving you a tithe of the verses in the New Testament about the coming and appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm passing over the other 80%. 1 John 3, verse 2, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. We are going to be made like one another because we're brethren, and He is going to change us to look like Him. It's hard for most people to believe, but preterists deny that Jesus Christ will return to planet Earth. They say it's past, but when you ask them about His past coming, He didn't come visibly, He didn't come personally, He didn't come literally, He didn't come to be seen, no one noted it, no pagan historian noted it, no Christian historian noted it, because He didn't come. Yes, we believe that Jesus Christ came figuratively and judgmentally on the city of Jerusalem to destroy His adversaries, but that is not what these passages are talking about. 
This is talking about Him coming in the flesh visibly where you're able to see Him. And you're going to be converted, changed to look just like Him. The gospel requires that Jesus Christ's return includes both the bodily resurrection of all the dead and the judgment of all the dead and the living. I want you to never forget these things. That if you can prove one of them, you can prove all three. And you can easily prove all three independently. But when you can prove all three independently and then prove that they are connected, you have one insurmountable task that preterists cannot bark against, though they bark. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. And let's re, let's connect some of these events. We just looked at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We read about the Thessalonians, that they turned from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, Amen. which delivered us from the wrath to come. And on and on and over and over, these... Short statements about His coming and His appearing are given to us in the New Testament. Right now we want to connect His coming with the resurrection of the dead. The futurists deny this because they've got so many gaps and lost seven years, a lost week of years, stuck after the so-called rapture. But there's no such thing as a rapture in the Bible. When the Lord Jesus Christ next appears, He is going to raise all the dead from the cemeteries, both the wicked and the righteous, the just and the unjust, and they're all going to stand before God and be judged, and He's going to burn up this planet all in one glorious day that is yet to come. There is no separation, distance, gaps, or years involved in this thing. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty three. But every man in his own order. Christ the firstfruits. Afterward, they that are Christ at His coming. That's when your resurrection will take place. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ was already described in the first ten verses about the various individuals that saw Him personally after He was risen from the dead. Christ, the first fruits, Every man in his own order. Jesus was raised first. But if you're Jesus Christ, I can promise you something. You're going to be raised as well because you are the harvest that He was the first fruits of. And this verse tells us when this resurrection will occur. It tells you, Christ the first fruits. afterward... They that are Christ at His coming. And see, there was no resurrection of the dead in 70 A.D. Oh, so much more can be said, and it has been written down. And it will be published, but we need to move on. I I hope you see the connection there. The coming of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of the dead are inseparable. Okay, John chapter 5. John chapter 5. Oh, brethren, the time goes so fast. That clock back there is spinning like a top. I don't need you to remove it. But I don't like it. And yet it describes reality to me, and it describes the condition of your bottom side. There's so much. We want to rejoice in these things, and yet we want to be righteously indignant that any would question even one of these things. Did you hear Paul's indignation in Galatians 1, 3, and 5? I want to be just like him. I don't care about pulpit manner. I don't care about bedside manner. God didn't give me either of them anyway, so I'm glad I have Paul to help me. 
I want to be like Elijah. I want to be like John the Baptist. Isaiah, Jeremiah, and the prophets who hewed them by the Word of God. I had both swords out of my bed this morning and a halberd. I was trying to figure out which one I was going to bring. But I didn't bring any. I don't want you to think I'm foolish. But it is a war. And we want a war on the side of the truth against error from any quarter. John chapter 5. The resurrection of our dead spirit natures is in verses 24 and 25 where the Savior said in verse 25, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live. That's a resurrection of spirit because it's described in verse 24. But notice, he comes down and describes a different resurrection in verse 28. Marvel not at this. Don't get too impressed by spiritual resurrection, by the power of the voice of the Son of God. Look at what I'm about to tell you. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming. It's purely future. It wasn't happening at this time. Notice the difference of timing. The hour is coming in the which all that are in the grave shall hear His voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Every body, every physical body, every carcass, every corpse, no matter how dissolved, no matter when it died, no matter when it was placed in the grave, is coming out by the voice of the Son of God. He was able to call one man out by Lazarus, come forth in John chapter 11, and with no greater exertion on his part will he utter the same words, and all bodies will come out of the grave. It doesn't matter how much they've corrupted and the worms have consumed them as Job described in chapter 19 and robins have eaten the worms and put them on your windshield and washed them off in the car wash. It doesn't matter where the cells of that body is. Jesus Christ will put it back together because the Bible says by Him all things consist. And He upholds all things by the word of His power. He is not going to lose your body and He's not even going to lose the bodies of the wicked because He's going to give them their bodies so that their bodies can suffer in the lake of fire forever and ever and ever. This is the word of the living God to you and me. And knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. And I hope that we can persuade each other this day that we will live this day more holily than we lived yesterday and that tomorrow will be a better day than today. Lord, help us. We will give an account. You will give an account what you are thinking about in this assembly. You will give an account as to how well you're following my words. You will give an account as to what fantasies you have entertained in the last 48 hours. You will give an account for what entertainment you have had in the last 48 hours. You will give an account how you've treated your spouse. You will give an account for what has come out of your lips. We will be judged by every idle word. I'm terrified in my flesh. But I rejoice in trembling that the Lord Jesus Christ spoke perfectly for me, thought holily for me, and lived righteously for me a perfect life. And I stand clothed in His righteousness. But oh, the confession that we are going to have to make Let us labor, therefore, that we might be approved of Him, whether we live or die. As our brother Stephen read to us from 2 Corinthians 5, 9. The resurrection of the dead. Don't you ever forget it. They're all coming out. 
this idea of a rapture and then a resurrection, then the dead being raised and on and on. The futurists imagine so many things. They're all coming out at once. As soon as the Lord Jesus Christ returns. Look at John chapter 11. John chapter 11. Lazarus is dead. Mary and Martha have sent for Jesus and they're disappointed that he didn't come in time before he died. Do you think it makes a difference to the Lord? about whether we are alive and remain or whether we're asleep in the church cemetery? Does it take extra effort on his part? Will he have to work overtime because he didn't get to you before you died? I love the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know what they said about him when he spoke? In the the Gospel of Luke? What a word is this! Exclamation point. When the Lord Jesus Christ speaks with power, he doesn't sit ex cathedra. He sits as the creator of the universe Amen. with unlimited, infinite power behind his voice. And he could tell the devils where to go. Amen. And they would come out immediately and leave those that they had possessed free before him. And they said, what a word is this? Well, I'll, sh- I'll show you his word. Lazarus is dead. And they come to him in verse 21, and Martha says, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. But she had some faith. Do you have it? But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. Do you believe that? Jesus saith unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. She wasn't a preterist, was she? Jesus said unto her, you say, but they call the last day 70 A.D. Yes, but no one rose from the dead. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? And she saith unto him, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. Look at Acts chapter 23. Acts chapter 23. Paul is on trial before the Jewish council of the high priests, the priests, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees, a whole assembly of the Jewish leadership is trying our brother Paul. When he perceives that there were some preterists there, I'll read it to you. Verse 6, But when Paul perceived that the one part were preterists and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Why am I calling the Sadducees preterists? Because they denied the resurrection of the dead. And so Paul, appealing to the historic creeds of Christendom, which you never hear me do, although I uttered it twice last Lord's Day, and I repeated it twice so that everybody would know that I was saying something very unusual. Is the Apostle Paul going to appeal to the doctrinal confession of faith of the Pharisees? Yes, he is. Why? Because they were right. 
when Paul perceived that the one part were Sadducee preterists and the others Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Of the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am called in question. And when he had so said, there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the multitude was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. And there arose a great cry, and the Pharisees wanted to deliver him. Is that wisdom? Do you know how much wisdom is in what I just read to you? Do you know that the Apostle Paul would quote from anywhere if it would serve his purpose? When he was on Mars Hill with the Greek philosophers, he quoted one of their minor poets. When he's writing Titus about the character of the inhabitants of Crete, he quoted a minor poet. He would quote anything that would serve his purpose, always bringing it back to the truth because he wouldn't quote anybody for an error. He would only quote them for the truth. And here he quotes the Pharisees and says, I am, not I was, but I am a Pharisee, and my father was a Pharisee before me, and we believe in the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And that's why I'm on trial. Do all of you brethren know why I'm on trial? I'm on trial for the resurrection of the dead. And I basically broke into a riot because the Sadducees, you know, wanted to kill him, and the Pharisees wanted to defend them. And so he quickly turned the attention among themselves I just want you to know that there was a historical doctrine of the resurrection of the dead maintained by the Pharisees that Paul appealed to, and we will appeal to the creeds of Christendom and the Pharisees themselves about the resurrection of the dead because Christians have believed in the resurrection of the dead no matter what denomination they go under for 2,000 years. And these preterists have come along, and in the arrogance of their bloated Egos, they think that they have come up with a doctrine that no one else has ever believed for 2,000 years. I will not quote anyone to prove truth. We'll only quote others to use the truth of those others with a particular audience. When dealing with a preterist, I would happily tell them, do you know that you're denying what's been maintained by all Christian denominations for 2,000 years? Who in the world gives you such a right when the Bible says that the faith was once delivered to the saints? And it was written by a man in the first century, meaning that it's been here for 2,000 years, but no one's had your corrupt form of doctrine. Chapter 24. He's still on trial. Acts chapter 24. Verse 14, This I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers. This is our brother Paul on trial, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. He wouldn't say that about any other book, believing all things. He would say, let God be true, but every man a liar. Until he can find once in a while, a liar makes a mistake and says something true. Which are written in the law and the prophets. Verse 15, and have hope toward God which they themselves also allow, that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. I want to, I'm trying to point out to you right now that the resurrection of the dead is of the just and the unjust. There aren't two resurrections. There's one resurrection of two categories of people. They're all coming up out of the ground according to the Word of God. Look at Romans chapter 8 and verse 11. Romans 8, 11. But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, 
He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your... Help me here. I can't read that long phrase. Mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwelleth in you. This tells me that the resurrection of the dead has to be of bodies. The other verses have told me that they have to be of the just and the unjust, the wicked and the righteous. So the resurrection of the dead is not spiritual, it's not figurative, it's of physical bodies, and it's of all men. Philippians chapter 3. Belly worshipers are described in the parentheses of verses 18 and 19. But we are not like them. The belly worshipers of verses 18 and 19 mind earthly things. The three words that end verse 19. They mind earthly things. <coughs> For our conversation is in heaven. Isn't that what we started out with a while ago from Colossians chapter 3? Philippians 3.20 For our conversation, that is our lifestyle, our manner of living. For our conversation is in heaven. From whence, that is from heaven, also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We look for Him because He's going to be seen. He's coming visibly as we've been reading. Who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto His glorious body according to the working whereby He is able even to subdue all things unto Himself. The Lord Jesus Christ has such verbal power He can subdue all things to Himself. He can destroy death. He can renovate the universe, Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 23. And He can change your corrupt and vile body into a body like His own. He's able to do it with His voice. Who shall change our vile body, not replace our vile body. We do not believe in the embodiment of spirits. We do not believe that when you were saved, you got your new body, one half of the preterists. We do not believe that when and your spirit goes to heaven, it gets a new body, the other half of the preterists. We believe that the body that we put in the ground is coming out and will be changed. That vile thing will be changed. Who shall change? Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall be changed. 1 Corinthians 15, For flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. So God will change us, that it may be fashioned like unto His glorious body, which lines up with 1 John 3, 2. We know... Brethren, now it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him. Because of this verse right here. And this verse because of that verse. So we look at these verses and we compare spiritual things with spiritual that Jesus Christ by His almighty power will fashion our bodies to be like His according to the working whereby He's able to do anything that a Creator should be able to do. Praise His glorious name. The resurrection of the dead. There were no dead bodies raised in 70 A.D. There's no record of any such event by either pagans or Christians. Listen, it was to be visible. Those bodies are going to come out of the ground and appear. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to come from heaven and appear. They're going to be together. They're going to be in the clouds. There's going to be an overwhelming, fantastic, earth-shattering event that's going to affect Jews and Gentiles alike. Nothing, Nothing like that happened in 70 A.D. If there wasn't a newspaper in your little town that was printed once a month with two-month-old information from across the Mediterranean Sea, you'd even know what was happening in 70 A.D. Rome had been doing that to cities and nations. Yes, it was the greatest tribulation any single city had ever suffered because of the number of people that were in it and how they died. But the final siege only took, only took a few months. 
Listen, you'd get hungry and start eating your children after a few weeks. So don't think it had to take years if it wasn't for the grace of God. Since no dead bodies were raised in 70 AD, they're guilty of denying the resurrection. Since a spiritual resurrection doesn't count because it's of our bodies, they deny the resurrection. Since they take the scriptures that describe a physical resurrection of dead bodies and spiritualize them away, they're guilty of denying the resurrection. Since they proudly say the resurrection is past, and as their name Preterist declares that it's past, they are guilty of the crime of Hymenaeus, and they are worthy of the punishment of Hymenaeus. Since they deny the resurrection, it's only inconsistency that keeps them from denying the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, which the Apostle Paul made inseparable in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Anyone attempting to spiritualize or allegorize 1 Corinthians 15 is obviously either an idiot or a liar. That chapter is about bodies. It is about the Lord Jesus Christ coming up out of the grave and being seen by Cephas and then being seen by some others, and then being seen by above 500 brethren at one time, and then being seen by the Apostle Paul. That chapter is about flesh and blood, not inheriting the kingdom of heaven, because it is talking about physical bodies. We do not spiritualize places where it is obviously physical in nature, and it agrees with all the rest of the testimony of Scripture, where Job said, Yet in my... Help me, I forgot the word. Yet in my flesh... Shall I see God? Amen. Not in my spirit, in my flesh. Are you all with me on this? Amen. There are attacks being made against the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Jesuits are behind their origin. But it's terrible that Christians fall into these false teachers' laps right. where with cunningness and craftiness and, and sleight of hand as it were. With doctrine, they corrupt them, and they're tossed to and fro like children from the truth of the gospel. Lord, help us and save us. John chapter 5 told us that when all those bodies come up out of the ground, marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which, it, it tells us that they're going to come up to a judgment. There's a resurrection of damnation, and there's a resurrection of life. So this third point that we want to make sure that we get tightly bound together is that when Jesus returns from heaven visibly, where we see Him at His coming and His appearing, we are raised from the dead and our vile bodies are changed to be like His glorious body according to the working whereby He is able to subdue all things unto Himself. A judgment takes place right then and there of spirits reunited with their bodies and of all men good and bad, take place right then. Right. Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews nine twenty seven, And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. The next big event by this text, after they die, is the judgment. Now we know that something has to take place in there for them to arrive at the judgment. What is it? The resurrection of the dead. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for Him shall He appear the second time without sin unto salvation. There's not going to be any sins that He's going to bring with Him to lay to your charge. Though you will give an account, those sins will be judged under the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to God. 
So Christ, so notice, he shall he appear. So we're talking about the second time. Does that help you? Do you understand what's under consideration here? His second coming. He shall appear the second time without sin unto salvation. And as it is appointed to men once to die, but after this the judgment. So there are three events tightly tied together. The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the resurrection of the dead, and the judgment. Look at Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. This is the chapter, the only place in the Bible that uses the period of a thousand years. We are what they would call amillennialists, meaning that this millennium, which is a Latin word for thousand, is a period of time between the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the second coming. The difference between us and preterists is that the preterists only allow that 40 years, and we've allowed it 2,000 years already. And it's a wonderful passage. I've preached it to you before. The outline is available on our website. It talks about those that are part of the first resurrection, which we believe is from John chapter 5, 24 and 25, that we are born again with a voice of the Son of God. That's the first resurrection. The second resurrection is coming up right here when their bodies are going to be raised. But we live and reign with Christ a thousand years. The whole period of time between the first coming and the second coming, we live and reign with Christ. If we're on earth, we're living and reigning with Him because He's made us to sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2 and about about verse 4 to 7, somewhere in there. Revelation chapter 20. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. This is the day of judgment. We shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Romans 14. We shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5. Read by our brother Stephen this morning. You can look at the 10th verse and you can find out that this is when the devil that deceived the nations was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's the lake of fire. The devil and his angels are cast into it. Then we see a great white throne and we're going to stand before it. And I saw the dead small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. Thank you, Lord. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. That's the grave. Death, the grave. Hell, the grave. Jesus said, Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, nor suffer thy holy one to see corruption. Hell in the Bible, oftentimes, is another word for the word grave. As we sang it in our Psalter, which took the word grave out of Psalm 49 and replaced it with the word hell, if you had your thinking hats on this morning while you were singing. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This is the judgment that occurs at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are the events that are all bound together by the Word of God. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. This is when Jesus will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity, because they're judged by their works out of the books and found wanting because their names are not in the book of life. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. I charge thee therefore before God. This is how serious Paul would get with 
his young minister Timothy, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. When Jesus Christ comes again, when he appears, this is his return from heaven, there's going to be a judgment and he's going to judge the quick and the dead. The quick are those that are alive, the dead are those that have already died. How's he going to get them all together? He's going to raise the dead from the dead. And so he's going to have them all standing before the throne of God and there's going to be a judgment. Second Timothy 4.1 This is an expression repeated in other places that God has ordained Jesus Christ to be the judge of the quick and the dead. So, if there was a day of judgment in 70 A.D., all the dead had to come out of the ground to be judged by the Lord. And when I say out of the ground, I don't mean their spirits, I mean their bodies. Right. Are you seeing how these verses all tie together? This is what's coming. There is a day coming when the Lord Jesus Christ is going to split this atmosphere that we know. And there is going to be a sound of His shout, and when He shouts, it's not like when you shout. And there's going to be the trump of God, and the dead are going to rise. And the dead in Christ are going to rise first before us, be caught up together with the Lord in the clouds, then we are going to be with the Lord in the clouds, because this earth is going to be incinerated, and we shall be before the throne of God, as the devil and his angels are cast into the lake of fire, and this universe is renovated, and we will be judged righteous or wicked, the wicked will be cast into the lake of fire, and the righteous will inherit the new heaven and the new earth. Praise be to God. This is what's coming. It's all future. It's not spiritualized in the Bible. It's very, very literal. The Apostle Paul said, We shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of what we did in our bodies. Verse 8 of 2 Timothy 4, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord... The righteous judge, thank you, Lord, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love His appearing. Do you love the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ? This is to be more than word. This is to be more than song. This is to be how you live. Do you love His appearing? If you love His appearing, then you're going to be living in a holy way to please Him and to meet Him with confidence. But notice, it's at His appearing. His appearing. He's going to be a judge. In Acts chapter 24, when the Apostle Paul sat with Felix, he reasoned with Felix about righteousness. Acts 24 and verse 25, he reasoned with that Roman governor of righteousness, that's doing what's right is defined by God, and of temperance, that is self-discipline and self-control to do what is righteous and of judgment to come. And Felix trembled and said, I'll hear you again some other time when I have a convenient season. You know, he wanted to get rid of eternal judgment. So do preterists and JWs. Who's a JW? John White? Jehovah's Witnesses. They get rid of hell. Preterists get rid of judgment by putting it at 70 A.D. when no judgment took place except the city of Jerusalem was burned up for having crucified the Lord of glory. 
Our brother Stephen read this morning. It's the third time I've mentioned your reading, brother, because it f- serves our purpose so well, as all your readings. Second Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul said that we use terror of the Lord to persuade men. And that didn't have anything to do with 70 A.D. That was written to the Corinthians that were in Achaia of Greece, a thousand miles away across the Mediterranean Sea from the city of Jerusalem. But there was a terror of the Lord that is yet to come on this earth when we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Judging a few Jewish adversaries by destroying Jerusalem, which we certainly believe by the scriptures that apply to that event, does not match the scriptural judgment at all. Would to God, the only judgment was that a Roman run me through with his sword and my spirit go to heaven. Would to God, it might be so nice as my children seeing that I'm the fattest and plumpest of them all and eating me in the siege in order to survive because my spirit would go to heaven. But there's a judgment coming that makes the judgment of Jerusalem look like nothing. And the consequence will not be having your city burned up, your house burned up, and your blood shed, but being cast alive into the lake of fire with your body to be tormented before the presence of the Lord forever and ever. Now who wants to get up for our break and talk about earthly things which make us belly worshipers and the enemies of the cross of Christ and then meet him and give an explanation for what we talked about today at our break. The gospel requires the whole earth and all men to be judged, including Gentiles and all the dead. Solomon would write, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. And so ends the book of Ecclesiastes. Let's not forget the 14th verse. You're going to give an account for every idle word because there is a day coming according to Romans chapter 2 in which God shall judge all men. The gospel requires that both the dead and the living are there and they're there in their bodies and they're all judged. The punishment that is afflicted is eternal. The outcome is damnation or eternal life. I close with Hebrews 6. Hebrews 6, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, these are the basic rules, these are the basic facts, these are the basic promises of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, leaving the principles, the basics of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands and of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. There are six basics of Christianity 
the last two of which are the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Anyone denying one of this list or two of this list or more of this list are not Christian because they're denying principles of the Christian faith. And I want to say something, and I said something last Sunday that some of you were startled by. We agree with the futurists on this verse that they are not Christians which deny anything in this list. Listen, I can agree with a Roman Catholic that believes the things in this list, but they don't because they don't really know what baptism is and so forth. But the point being, like Paul agreed with the Pharisees against the Sadducees, he saw that on this particular point of doctrine, not all points of doctrine, but this particular point of doctrine, Pharisees were right. Sadducees were wrong. Futurists are right. Preterists are wrong. Futurists are Christians. By this definition, preterists are not Christians. By this definition. The sad thing is, most preterists were once futurists. Down in the ditch of futurism, they saw the insanity and the idiocy of left-behind movies and Clarence Larkin cartoon books and Hal Lindsey, the late great planet Earth books, and they crawled up out of that ditch by the mercy of God and the teaching of some minister that taught them the truth, and they found the road of truth, but in their zeal to get away from futurism, they came rushing up over the road, crossed it, and fell into a deeper, darker ditch of preterism. They would have been better off in the ditch of futurism because at least they would have still had held out for their faith and the faith of their children. The resurrection of the dead. The literal coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The day of judgment. New heavens and a new earth. And so forth and so on. I hope I've made myself clear on that. Are there many things that futurists believe that I despise? Absolutely. But I'll tell you, when I measure the principles of the doctrine of Christ, we're dealing with a heresy that is horrible. It is anti-Christian. Let us make sure that we remember the things that make us a Christian by, by this passage. The resurrection of the dead at the coming of Christ, which we've proven, and a day of judgment and its eternal judgment. Lord, help us to remember those things and live in the light of them.